This episode is sponsored by Airbnb. The focus of season three is all about how art and creativity can be used to bring about social change, combating racism, discrimination, and ultimately finding beauty through justice. Airbnb's mission is to help create a world where people can belong anywhere, and they wanted to support these conversations. And throughout the season, I'll be featuring some of their actions in this space. So stay tuned for that. Okay, let's start the show. Sadiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. And I've said this only in a couple of contexts before, but in the course of, of researching Solovanation, one of the more polemical titles that we'd come up with for the show was Black Enough. Because wow. I kid you not, everyone, every single artist we spoke to, whether they were a member of the Black Panther Party or I don't know, whatever other extreme you may want to think of in that context, you know, someone living on the Upper East Side, whatever, you know, that there was some point in the course of our many, many conversations over the years where they would say, oh, well, I was never Black enough for X or Y. And we understand the extent to which these kind of, these movable targets of like what these expectations are and what we're supposed to be, like, you know, that will kill you. <laughs> like that is, yeah. that's a big weight to carry. I've been watching really bad reality TV from the early noughties. You know that TV where you know you're watching trash, but you just keep watching and you're like 10 episodes in. Anyway, so I was so aware of how undiverse it was. All white cast, all white magazine with people of colour that you could count on one hand and mostly in the background. And it was a show set in New York, one of the most diverse cities in America. And it so happened that I was watching this trashy TV series while editing this week's episode all about art and representation. It really got me thinking about identity. How important is it to see ourselves on TV, in art, in cinema, in positions of power, in public spaces that aren't just your immediate circles? Culture shapes society and society shapes culture. Isn't that why it was such a big deal when Black Panther came out with an almost entirely black cast? Or Crazy Rich Asians with its entirely Southeast Asian cast? And even more recently, placing a diverse cast in a period drama like Bridgerton, which, I should say, I seem to be the only person who hasn't seen it, or maybe the only woman who hasn't seen it. 
Sociologist and cultural theorist Professor Stuart Hall spoke of cultural identity not just as a matter of being, but also of becoming. It isn't a fixed identity, but one that is in constant and continual transformation. And art is central to that belonging. And so perhaps if you're in the black diaspora or you're a person of colour who is a minority in your country, to not see yourself in culture or to have that representation distorted or erased speaks to our sense of belonging or, in fact, not belonging. Stuart Hall called it a kind of radical homelessness. And that's what we talk about with my guest today, art curator, art historian and writer, Dr Zoe Whitley. I think it was because that sense of of looking for myself, you know, of being so interested in, you know, an expressionist painter like Otto Dix or, you know, this kind of, like, so much emotion coming out of Egon Schiele. You know, it's not like any of their realities were my reality, but I was really inspired by it. And to have teachers or other people in your life that want to encourage your interest and then who also want to help you see yourself is vitally important for all of us. So I think the fact that, that my teacher, you know, that Marianne Hall was willing to say, you know, let's find books so that you can learn the history that we're not teaching in the curriculum, that she made a way for me to to do that and for us to kind of build that together um, was really special. And I wish more people had that. With a BA in art history from Swarthmore College in the States, Zoe obtained her master's from the Royal College of Art, where she did her dissertation on black representation in fashion. She did her doctorate at the University of Lancashire, where she was supervised by Professor Lubaina Himid, the first black woman to win the Turner Prize in 2017, and Professor Alan Rice. Zoe started her career as a curator at London's Victoria and Albert Museum. She curated the Kathy Wilkes solo exhibition at the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale in 2019, and is perhaps most known for those of us who aren't in the arts, with the celebrated 2017 exhibition, Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, at London's Tate Modern. She was senior curator at the Hayward Gallery and is currently director of London's Chisholm Gallery. Zoe is also a writer and has written numerous articles and books on the arts, as well as children's art books, introducing young people to artists such as Sophie Teuber Arp and Frank Bowling. Her full bio can be found in the podcast blurb. We talk about the power of possibility, having what's possible reflected back at us. We talk about black women and their hair, about standards of beauty and representations of black women and beauty. I think the first time I saw the footage of Toni Morrison talking about it, it took me back to being like a very little girl. And this is awful. But I remember one Christmas, I was really disappointed that I had been purchased the black Barbie rather than the white one. And I I think I was aware enough in my family to know that like somehow I shouldn't be disappointed. Like A, be grateful for what you're given and you've gotten the present. I literally got what I asked for. But then also, you know, this very internalized thing where I thought that other one was prettier. We talk about access, access to the arts, particularly with respect to her co-curation of the celebrated Soul of a Nation. All aspects of culture can feed into one another. You know, I'm not interested in this kind of an exclusive something of like 
high and low and, you know, what happens in the museum can't be connected to the world outside. And so all of those considerations were really important, you know, to think about like who Sullivanation is for, how it might reach precisely that audience without the presumption that they'll just find it on their own. We talk about the next generation of curators who are speaking to the world we're in now. We talk about learning to rest, how rest is in fact an act of radical resistance. What it means for for Black people in particular to opt out of a hyper-productive capitalist cycle where you're only as valued as what you're producing and what you're making. And, you know, the fact that, you know, historically we weren't allowed to rest. Like mm-hmm. what gets what gets equated with laziness rather than like well-earned rest. You know, it's okay for us to to rest and to to recover and that that in except in itself is is a form of activism, is an act of resistance. Oh. And as always, we talk about music. Dr. Zoe Whitley, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. I feel like you have a wonderful credentials. You have all the degrees. My father would be extremely proud. Oh, I think your father and my grandfather then would get along very well because I think (laughs) I got them for him (laughs) to prove that I could do something with my art history degree and then just kind of kept going with it. But it's certainly, yeah, the credentials make him happy. Fantastic. So you have a BA in art history from Swarthmore College, just outside of Philadelphia, a master's from the Royal College of Art, uh, a PhD as well. You started your curatorial practice at the V&A. You've created, um, curated the Kathy Wilkes solo exhibition at the British Pavilion at the Venice Biennale, senior curator at the Hayward Gallery. Uh, You were also at the Tate and you are now director of Chisholm Gallery. But what I like to do is ask everybody, you know, you have an American accent. I think you were born in Washington, is that correct? I was born in Washington, D.C. I was raised in L.A. So I'm kind of, yeah, 50-50, an East Coast girl and a West Coast girl. Fantastic. But you now are based in London. This October, actually, will be the halfway point where I will have lived half my life in the UK, believe it or not, and half my life in the US. Yeah, I came in October of 2001. So tell us a little bit about how you got into the arts, how you got into this curatorial practice of yours from, you know, being in Washington and LA. Tell us a little bit of your origin story, I like to call it. It's a funny thing, because if you, anytime you have to write something down or rationalize your work life on paper or on a CV, I think it's very easy to make something look like, you know, you went from A to B to C in quite a linear way when mm-hmm. even my having worked, you know, in one field, like in the nonprofit visual arts, um, does take these kind of more circuitous routes. So, you yeah. know, you joked at the beginning that, you know, the, the PhD would make your your dad proud, but... It wasn't really straightforward for me to study art history at university. Um, I went to a high school that incorporated a lot of arts into the curriculum. 
when I would have been in 10th grade, which would have been year nine, Mm -hmm. um, we had a really interesting opportunity. It was my first chance to kind of help shape what I wanted to study or what I wanted to learn about. But it was possible Mm -hmm. to, um, instead of just following the standard high school curriculum, you could opt into having your day anchored by basically the sandwich of history and studio art. So we would be learning about World War II, and we'd also be learning about, you know, book burnings in Germany and the Degenerate Art Show and artists fleeing Europe to go to America. So it all felt very, um, I mean, sounds a bit trite to say, but it did make the history lessons come to life. And then what we were doing in the art studio was learning just a whole bunch of different techniques and kind of how to think out loud or in color to try and figure out, I've got this idea in my head, how can I express it? I don't know. That was like the gateway drug for me, I guess. I really, really (laughs) got into art history from there. And I think my family was very much thinking that it's something that I would put down (laughs) after high school. Um, But my studio art teacher, Marianne Hall, was really amazing. So even in my final year of secondary school, I was able to do an independent study with her because I wanted to learn more about Black artists. And she supported me in every way. And so I created a series of works that were done in the style of different artists. So they were all kind of either self-portraits or or family portraits. Um, So very much in the figurative tradition, but it taught me a lot about like how hard it is to do something properly. Um, So I'm very much not from that school of my kid could have done that because, you know, I have made art before and I definitely think I'm better at talking about other people's art than making it. Um, But that was something that was just so exciting for me that mm. I continued on um, at uni. And I think my mom was hoping at every point that I would like transfer to doing pre-law. <laughs> Her favorite line at one point was like, well, if you just studied law and became a lawyer, then you could maybe do art law. And then you can become a judge. <laughs> like all the roads ended with me being a judge for a period of time, which was really funny. And I was like, um, I don't want to do that. Um, so... I ended up studying art history at undergrad, and Mm -hmm. I had a really special uh, experience one summer at the L.A. County Museum of Art. Um, The Getty Museum um, funds these internships citywide that are paid. And so in the 90s, it certainly wasn't obvious that if you wanted to work in the arts, um, you could have a paid opportunity to learn what the work was even about. You know, it was... 100% guaranteed that you were going to have to work for free. That was just, that used to be the way in. And I wouldn't have been Mm. able to do that. And so the women that I worked with that summer really encouraged me to think about, you know, postgraduate work. I was, I was thinking like, oh, after this, I'm done. And then I was like, oh no, man, if I want to work in museums, I've got to keep studying more. But I really, really was interested in what the work was, how much they knew about different Mm -hmm. objects and the stories behind them. The fact that some of them knew, like some of the artists or designers that were in the collection, that to me, thinking about like artists as real people, like that was a revelation. Mm -hmm. So all of it kind of built an interest that I was then able to 
pursue. Um, so, and that's why I ended up in London in the first place was purely just to do the MA course. And at that point, you know, in my whatever, 20 year old head or 21, I definitely thought like, oh, I'll come right back to America. But, you know, here I am in London, you know, 20 years later still. So, yeah. Amazing. It's really interesting um, because, so I should say that the theme, if you like, for this podcast, this season, I think given the world we're in, is sort of creative um, expression when it comes to anti-racism and um, and social justice. That's kind of the overarching theme. And I happen to be reading this week an article by um, Sarah Elizabeth Lewis. Yeah, and I the, know Sarah. Yeah, and the project she has, the Vision and Justice Project. And I was really thinking about the function of art and visual imagery in our day and, and, and representation. And I know she looks at how art, law, law and justice merge um, in their role sort of representing American culture and America's racial justice history. And I know that you or your MA was a dissertation on black representation in fashion. Yeah. Which I think is really interesting because so I, I'm going to sort of, I want us to sort of go down that road and then talk about Soul of a Nation, but really within the context of how art speaks to social change and representation and who's doing the representation and who's doing the curating. So tell me and where do we find ourselves? I yeah. think that all of these questions are really important. And that's why I spent like probably too long telling you about like, my high school experience. You're like, why is this 41 year old woman talking about high school? And I was very awkward. It's not like I had like a good social life or remember high school fondly other than those classes, other than my, yeah. my time in the art studio and the time with the history teacher. Um, but I think it was because that sense of, of looking for myself you know, being so interested in, you know, an expressionist painter like Otto Dix or, you know, this kind of like so much emotion coming out of Egon Schiele. You know, it's not like any of their realities were my reality, but I was really inspired by it. And to have teachers or other people in your life that want to encourage your interest and then who also want to help you see yourself is yeah. vitally important for all of us. So I think the fact that that my teacher, you know, that Marianne Hall was willing to say, you know, let's find books so that you can learn the history that we're not teaching in the curriculum, that she made yeah. a way for me to, to do that and for us to kind of build that together um, was really special. And I wish more people had that. And so, yeah, the the book that we were working from is David Driscoll's exhibition catalog from his landmark um, Los Angeles County Museum show, which, you know, is now um, an HBO documentary has been made about it. Fantastic. David Driscoll was one of our contributors to Soul of a Nation catalog. And in so many ways, our research built upon what he had done over a lifetime of, of scholarship. And that, yeah, just to be able to contribute to that feels really major. But obviously if you'd asked me at 
16, 17. I don't think I would have been able to articulate that that's what I was looking for in the work. But I had definitely been asking questions or wondering, like, where were other Black images in the works? Um, Wanting to find, you know, being interested in those representations, you know, whether it's, you know, by Rembrandt or, you know, again, the kind of figures that might otherwise be in the periphery, but that curators are, are really bringing to the fore. You know, the fact that um, a whole project could be built around, you know, naming the otherwise unnamed figures through Denise Morell's project, Posing Modernity, right. the Black model from Manet and Matisse to today, um, mm. that then traveled to the Musée d'Orsay, I think all of those types of things are really shifting the ground on which like future scholars and curators and thinkers, makers will be able to build because, you know, one of the reasons why I ended up doing my MA dissertation on representations of blackness in Vogue magazine is because it was such a little discussed history and having been raised in a family where my grandmother and her two sisters, both of my great aunts were all kind of fashion designers and spending all of their spare time making works and part of a very active um, African-American women's organization called NAFAD, the National Association of Fashion and Accessories Designers. They've got a little display in the, in the Smithsonian National Museum. African-American heritage and culture, which is brilliant. Um, But, you know, we, I grew up in the 80s when magazines still totally unapologetically said, you know, we can't put black models on the cover because the issue won't sell and Mm -hmm. we have to be a viable business. And that was somehow, you know, acceptable, (laughs) And the fact that that's no longer acceptable or tenable or, you know, could be the thing that then tanks your magazine is, you know, a very good point for us to now have reached. But I think that, yeah, looking at that interplay, as you mentioned, of, you know, structural racism, how that then perpetuates socially and how that then can kind of really poison what we think of as as a cultural contribution. Um, you know, who gets to be an artist? Like if you were to do Vox Pop on the street, who would be named as an artist? Who comes to your mind's eye when you think of who an artist can be? You know, all of these things have an impact. And that in turn would then have, um, you know, a very real implication on who someone like my daughter thinks she could be. You know, if you never Absolutely. see any representation of yourself. So all of it is really, you know, serious on that level. But I think for me, what I've always just really enjoyed is that there's just so much beautiful work, so much really fascinating, interesting work that, you know, it's so exciting to, A, for me to learn about, but then to have a job where it's literally my job to then tell other people about it. Like that's, I just, I really love it. So that to me is an exciting part of it. And certainly, you know, I don't I don't think of myself as an activist in in any kind of formal sense, but I suppose having charted, you know, how I came to 
to see art and to learn about certain artists and then build upon that in my work, I do see how important it has been in my own life to have access to an equitable representation of art, to have access to arts institutions that, you know, were free of charge. You know, all of those things make a difference in terms of barriers to access. Um, and, and that to me is, I think, a big part of why I've always worked in, in the nonprofit sector, because I think I realize on a lot of levels how much it gave me in my formative years yeah. and being able to contribute to that in some way. Um, yeah, selfishly, I guess, is very rewarding to me. And I think, you know, it's so interesting because I've been thinking a lot and I was talking to a friend about this just the other day because we were talking about um, she's in film and television and just sort of who is telling black people's stories and that a lot of stories about us are often about our trauma and that there is so much exciting stuff going on and and celebrating beauty and and what could supposedly be um considered perhaps superficial but it's just it's actually beauty is part of our liberation in in many ways and i was thinking about um you did an article you were talking about alma thomas i think you did this harper's bazaar article and i loved what you said about her because i'd never thought of it this way but about her use of color and that it was showing optimism. And she said, I'm, I'm going to quote it, she said, through colour, I have sought to concentrate on beauty and happiness rather than on man's inhumanity to man. So the work you're doing is part of a, for me, a part of a wider puzzle of us all bringing in all of these things and saying, you know, we are human multifaceted like everybody else do you know what I mean that to me is so important and that that was you've literally just said what I used to often say in meetings in the kind of planning and lead up to to soul of a nation because mm. I think it's so important to really not just foreground but to constantly emphasize that this was an art exhibition and we're talking about artists and what I absolutely didn't want us to do in this particular context was to, to in any way be kind of reveling in images of, of our Black pain or that that would become synonymous with, you know, the struggle or that, you know, there weren't also these wonderful moments of beauty. And I think there there's so many ways of thinking about how that's expressed and think it a very heavy moment in the first lockdown. Um, an artist based in Philadelphia, who I really respect, um, Tiona Nakaya McLaughlin, um, was doing, uh, I can't remember if it's an Instagram story or if it's just recorded mm -hmm. on IGTV. And then, you know, you kind of click yeah. through and listen to the longer piece. Um, but she was talking about um, a very transactional nature of the kind of deluge of uh, requests from institutions that started coming yeah. in thick and fast for um, Black makers and kind of creative responses. Uh, mm. and, and she just issued a very, very poignant reminder that, you know, for those people who are working, you know, in an abstract vein or mm. purely, you know, 
again, to, you know, to think about Alma Thomas and this kind of reveling in color, that like the work that you do and that you produce, that that's enough, that you don't have to then become something else or someone else's idea of what it's supposed to mean to be a Black person in this moment. And um, and I've said this only in a couple of contexts before, but in the course of, of researching um, Soul of a Nation, one of the more polemical titles that we'd come up with for the show was Black Enough. Because wow. I kid you not, everyone, every single artist we spoke to, whether they were a member of the Black Panther Party or mm-hmm. I don't know, whatever other extreme you may want to think of in that context, you know, mm-hmm. someone living on the Upper East Side, whatever, you know, that there was some point in the course of our many, many conversations over the years where they would say, oh, well, I was never Black enough for X or Y. And we right. understand the extent to which these kind of, these movable targets of like, what these expectations are and what we're supposed to be like, you know, that will kill you. <laughs> like that is, yeah. that's a big weight to carry when we don't just have the freedom to be or take the freedom to be. And I think what I, what I'm constantly inspired by with the artists that I've been able to get to know and who've given so much time to me is that, that willingness to, not that it's easy all the time, but that willingness to to let go and be like, okay, this is who I am and this is what I've got to do. And even when you're talking, I was thinking about so many people that I've learned from over the past year. Um, Trisha Hersey being one of them, the Nap Bishop. She's She runs the Nap Ministry, but is also okay. a performance artist and really talks about um, the radical act of rest. Wow. And what it means for for black people in particular to opt out of of a hyper productive capitalist cycle where you're mm. only as valued as what you're producing and what you're making mm. and you know the fact that you know historically we weren't allowed to rest like mm. what gets what gets equated with laziness rather than like well-earned rest yeah you know it's okay for us to to rest and to to recover and that that in except in itself is is a form of activism is an act of resistance um and i i think that that's such a beautiful thought one that a i personally needed to hear but um that also it just it gets at something so vital about how we can rethink the conditions in which we we live and work and that there's still a lot of of room to go but i think that there's so many creative people and artists in particular that help kind of show us those possibilities you know when things aren't okay you know i find that artists are the first ones to to speak out and to say yes you know, actually, no, hang on a minute, this isn't all right. Or, you know, to tie into what I was saying before, like, it's completely illegitimate for us to then be supporting these fashion magazines that won't have us on the cover. You know, I think of someone like um, the Black British photographer, Joy Gregory. Um, Mm -hmm. And in 1990, she made a really beautiful series of self-portraits called Auto Portrait. And it looks Mm -hmm. like a contact sheet almost, like the kind Mm -hmm. of, 
you know, outtakes that you would have from a photo shoot. And again, because she had also been raised with that same kind of messaging that, you know, well, we can't have a black woman, you know, selling shampoo or this soap or being on the cover of this magazine. And, you know, Lubaina Hamid's um, series, um, Cutting Up the Guardian, is very much about that as well. And even now, um, when she, you know, speaks about it and contextualizes it for a younger generation, is actually kind of wonderfully fortifying that some people can't imagine, you know, not seeing black faces on television or yes. in adverts. And I'm like, okay, we, we have further to go, but we've moved from somewhere. But even when I think of, as I said, how, you know, how I was raised and what the, the standards of, of beauty were, you know, on MTV or whatever, mm. it is so important for us to have a whole range of of visual sources of inspiration. Uh, absolutely. I think um, it's what Du Bois calls, isn't it, double consciousness. There's this kind of schizophrenia. Yeah, you know, it has a tuness, yeah, where you're just constantly aware. You are yourself, mm-hmm. but then you're aware of, yeah, this kind of this extrinsic gaze, pressure, force upon you. If you're a person of colour, it's very likely that you or someone you know will be able to share stories of not being able to rent or buy property because of how you look or because of your name. My name is Matsudiso. It's a South African name and it really should be pronounced Matsidiso. But, well, I was raised in London and this is my accent, so I say Matsudiso. Sometimes people think my name is Japanese and then they see my face and I see their faces trying to compute what they imagined against what they actually see. Those of us in the UK may remember the phrase landlords had in their windows in the 50s and 60s, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. And you may think times have changed. We have anti-discrimination laws, progress has been made, but governments can only go so far to legislate against people's racist or discriminatory mindsets. And so, what does a consumer-led tech company like Airbnb do when people of colour report racial discrimination? Well, after an audit conducted by civil rights lawyer Laura Murphy, and after working with a number of consultants and stakeholders, Airbnb set up Project Lighthouse. In partnership with Colour of Change, the United States' largest online racial justice organisation, with millions of members and with guidance from civil rights and privacy rights organisations, Airbnb launched this groundbreaking project to measure and fight bias and discrimination. Using tech to collect the data needed to measure and evaluate discrimination on its platform in the US so it can take additional action against it. Central to social change is not just talking about the problems, but as my guest African feminist and activist Jessica Horn said in season one, It's about identifying the problem, then doing the work to change it. And also, she said, having the humility to acknowledge that you don't have all the answers. And I think Airbnb have recognised that by seeking out people who understand racism and its impact. And secondly, acknowledging that their contribution is a small part of a much needed wider whole. As Colour of Change President Rashad Robinson said, I quote, Silicon Valley has a long way to go to constructively engage with civil rights groups 
by proactively, not reactively, seeking out our expertise to build platforms that serve black people instead of harming us. Airbnb is setting an important precedent by taking measurable steps to examine and dismantle discriminatory online systems. We will continue to urge Airbnb to thoughtfully engage members of our communities in developing solutions to support long-time black residents at risk of displacement from their neighbourhoods. To find out more, you can type in Measuring Discrimination on the Airbnb platform or click the link in the podcast blurb. And it's weird. I mean, this is a bit of a weird thing, but I've been thinking about this a lot because I was watching this, uh, you know, what is it called? The Black Lady Sketch Show? I think something like that. And I was watching this sketch um, because I was thinking about hair and I was thinking about representation and I was thinking a lot about my father because my father wasn't was is uh, what he would call a freedom fighter and activist. And so his sense of what he conveyed to us about beauty, I remember. um, So my mum is Jamaican and I guess she has like long, what they would call quote unquote coolie hair. And my dad is black South African. And so he was really anti us doing, putting any products on our hair. And then I went to Jamaica with my mum. My dad didn't, wasn't there. And I relaxed my hair and I came back and I remember my dad picked me up from the airport and he said to me, it looks like a cat has licked your head. Like he was so anti-relaxer. I've never, I mean, I was about 15. I've never forgotten. He's like, what did you do to your hair? It looks like a cat has licked your head. But anyway, I was watching Black Lady Sketch Show. There was one scene and I was looking at the women and not one of them had their natural hair all of them had wigs or weaves which is fine I I don't want to suggest that women shouldn't wear weaves and wigs if they want that's not what I mean but it made me think about how when we're used to a gaze from someone else even how we view ourselves and standards of beauty and what we think is beautiful even gets skewed because I when I think of natural hair the only actress I can think of that had natural hair and was like a thing was Lupita Nyong'o, but she was, Mm. he's Kenyan. And it was just, it just, I was just contemplating it, you know, just in terms of how we're so used, you know, like if you watch, um, like if someone is doing their hair, everyone's talking about the edges and how our edges are. It's like something that it just, it means so much to us. But I think part of it is because of the external gaze of feeling the other. I think so. And also, I feel like I, it was fascinating to me, like, in the early 2000s, late 90s, when, like, blogs first started and there was a real kind of sharing of information for, for natural hair. Um, you know, whether it's like, okay, if you take some aloe vera, and I felt like everybody became these home chemists, you know, and a little <laughs> bit of castor oil, like this is going to change your life, you know, or, you know, this mm. recipe for honey mm. and who knows what. Yeah. And I'd read something not all that long ago that was was talking about the extent to which some of those early kind of natural recipes, remedies, you know, use of henna, was actually still designed precisely to get a natural texture that was kind of looser and closer to what you're referring to as, you know, your mother's hair texture or something like that. And that, again, like to really, really be reflecting, you know, a whole range of, you know, to really embrace and embody that, you know, there's more than one type of beauty 
Yes. There also have to be many, many examples of that in our visual frame of reference. You know, I guess that's what I, what I come back to because, you know, it's one thing for us to say it or, you know, to reinforce it for our children or other people. But then again, if you don't, if you're not also seeing it reflected back, you know, that message can land a bit hollow. You know, I think it's, yeah, it takes me back to, you know, Toni Morrison, you know, talking about why she wrote something like The Bluest Eye, you know, that, yeah, you know, yeah. if you think about these children or someone she knew growing up wanting this thing that was completely impossible to have, but mm-hmm. also being to, able to understand on a very kind of deep level where that desire would come from, because it would constantly be, you know, presented in yeah. your face that, that that's the thing you should want. That's mm-hmm. what we should aspire to. Yeah. And it, I mean, that particular story is a very painful story. It's like it's something I, I think the little they were about 10 and the girl was arguing with Toni Morrison that God didn't exist because if God existed, she said, I've been praying and praying for blue eyes and he hasn't given me blue eyes. And it, and the way, you know, Toni Morrison is so she was such even in interviews, just such a fantastic storyteller. And the pain of that story, you know, was just, and for a 10 year old to think in those terms, you know, but, but I, I, I should say I am not anti-weave or anti-wigs. We're free to do what we want. I just want to, you know, know I think, I think that it's, it's important to say that, you know, there, there's choice, there's beauty in being able to switch it up. All of that is fantastic, but you know, that there are. Yeah, I think of my own childhood, you know, even when I think the first time I saw the footage of Toni Morrison talking about it, it took me back to being like a very little girl. And this is awful. But I remember one Christmas, I was really disappointed that I had been purchased the black Barbie rather than the white one. And I I think I was aware enough in my family to know that like, somehow I shouldn't be disappointed. Like, A, be grateful for what you're given and you've gotten the present. I literally got what I asked for. But then also, you know, this very internalized thing where I thought that other one was prettier. And then Mm -hmm. even having to reconcile that in a way that, you know, I didn't feel that I could articulate. I think I was six or something, you know, like very little, but, you know, that these things are real. And I mean, that's, you know, a silly example. That's not like a serious example, but it does have an effect on how you shape a sense of of who you are and yeah, how you appreciate yourself. Because then, I'm, of course, I didn't look like that other <laughs> brown Barbie doll either. But, you know, <laughs> if the thing that somehow you're kind of pinning your sights on of like, that's the lovely one, that's what elegance mm. looks like, and it's even farther away from you than, you know, so many people have written and spoken about this better than I'm doing right now. But, you know, Bell Hooks has written kind of some wonderful essays on this. But, you know, that is real, basically, you know. And I think that that, I guess, is the, the point that we're talking about, that the many different ways that that we work and kind of produce things, particularly if it's adding to um, things that people can can see and process, it does also make a difference in, in the world around us in some ways. 
You know, it really does. It really does. And I think, you know, your story, you said it was a silly example. I think it's a very important example. I understand perhaps it's not as serious as the blue eyes thing, but I think when you have multiple layer upon layer upon layer of stories like that, actually as an adult, if it affects how you move in the world and not just how you feel physically about yourself, but actually I think the, what happened is it starts to affect what you think is possible for yourself. It starts to shrink possibilities. I mean, I think that's why it was so powerful to have the Obamas in office. I, f I feel like what they represented was more important than even any of the work they did. It was what does it what does it mean to have this African-American? Well, mixed. He was biracial, wasn't he? man american man black american man with standing with a black wife and what it meant to you know that she wasn't white or she wasn't mixed race yeah and the that's i think you know the first eight years of my daughter's life that that's what the first family looked like yeah i think that that makes an absolutely seismic difference in what you think you can achieve. I was doing some research recently on um, Faith Ringgold's children's books. And in one of them, one of her characters, Melody, at the end of the book, having met through portraits coming to life, um, a whole host of formidable black women from history, um, including Harriet Tubman and Sojourner Truth, um, but also opera singers like Marian Anderson, um, she decides that she's going to become president of the United States. Um, wow. And that that book was written, I believe, in 1999. I'll have to, I'd have to check, but it's in the 90s. Um, and again, so like pre-Obama administration, but there's such a, a beautiful arc in that story of, of really demonstrating how knowing our history and having kind of images and names and faces and stories to that um, can be completely foundational in building up, you know, future aspirations, you know, future goals, like things that people will then achieve. I want to move on to a little bit and sort of connect where we are now with what you did with Soul of a Nation. So Soul of a Nation, Art in the Age of Black Power, 1963 to 1983, spanning this sort of civil rights and then into the 80s. I'd be interested in two things. Firstly, sort of why you chose that and how, how you came to that period, that 20-year period. But also I've been thinking about who is going to curate the next sort of art in this age that we're in now? And I keep seeing that picture of George Floyd that became the iconic picture. The sort, of, I think it was like graffiti. Just what kind of, what would be curated now and what would be the theme for the era we're in now? So perhaps start with Soul of a Nation and then let's talk about now. Um, yeah, I think with, with Soul of a Nation, from the point of view of the the time period, um, it maps very neatly onto the shifts in our self-identification as 
black people in America, um, from Negro and colored through to Afro-American and black and, you know, debates about black with a capital B. Um, so really, um, an evolution of embracing precisely what we've been talking about earlier, things that had been potentially internalized as, um, as sources of the opposite of pride and really, you know, taking that and owning it and making it about power. And, you know, what Stokely Carmichael called black power. Um, you know, he changed his name to Kwame Ture. So I should also yes. say that. Um, so I'm not referring to him by the previous name. Um, but so this arc in that 20 years really follows a period from Negro to African-American in, mm. in a temporal sense. Um, but again, as I said, because it's very resolutely an art exhibition, it also um, kind of knitted together very helpfully uh, a range of artist-led responses to the times that artists were living in. And I think with an exhibition, you're telling a story in space. Not everything needs to be an exhibition. You know, some things might be better as a talk or it really needs to be a book or it can be these other things. And we were, I think, fortunate with the project and like amazing support for it, especially from Darren Walker um, and Elizabeth Alexander, the Ford Foundation in that there was an opportunity for us to do a number of things simultaneously. Not only to have the big ambitious exhibition that we wanted, but also like a proper catalog. And then um, through Mark's kind of, you know, complete fervor for soul jazz records are having been able to do like um, two different vinyls and CDs alongside it. Uh, and then also the the films that we were able to produce with Zoe Ashton, Cecilia Meke, um, Khalil Joseph, among others, because I'm jumping around a little bit here, but to your point about like, who's gonna do the next thing, I think you always have to be thinking about the next generation. I mean, for me, it was always so important that Soul of a Nation as an exhibition was directed to um, young Londoners, to really mm -hmm. saying like, the context and the country is different, but you might find something here that, that you respond to and please come, I would, we would like you to be here. And I think mm -hmm. making that welcome and knowing that, that we, there was an intention to direct the message that way, you know, by having the posters on bus shelters rather than just on the tube network, um, right. you know, kind of small flyers that were also in barbershops and in other places locally, including my postcode in Lewisham, you know, different places from where the museum had previously advertised its kind of big fee paying exhibitions. That was all um, very much intentional, but the films in particular, which I think were so close to my heart, really had a way of connecting that 
hypothetical I mentioned earlier, but like if you were to ask people on the street to name an artist, I thought, you know, we will have done something if as a result of this, someone in the street can name one black artist, one more than they could before. Um, and so I also knew that we can't necessarily presume that just because we've done the work that people will come to us. So what if, because people are such huge fans of strolling, they might be introduced to Faith Ringgold because of Cecile or because they love Zowie Ashton and Fresh Meat or any number of other things, not safe for work and other, I'm a big fan, <laughs> but any other projects that then that's the interest in Lorraine O'Grady. And certainly, I mean, with Khalil, I mean, he has a very big following already, but his own um, personal commitment to and the inspiration that comes from a photographer like Roy Decarava, being able to then translate that for someone who might be looking at what Khalil is interested in because they loved lemonade. You know, I think mm. that there are ways to think about how all aspects of culture can feed into one another. You know, I'm not mm. interested in this kind of an exclusive something of like high and low and, you know, what happens mm. in the museum can't be connected to the world outside. And so mm. I think it was all, I'm answering in quite a circuitous way, but I think all of those, all of those considerations were really important, you know, to think about like who Soul of a Nation is for, how it might reach precisely that audience without the presumption that they'll just find it on their own, mm. that, mm. you know, we, we have to do more work to make sure that, that it's, yeah, that it's made accessible and also that people can, can respond back, that we can do events in the gallery that are maybe different from how we'd done before, that um, I was really excited that um, the young people who work with Tate had chosen our exhibition to do one of their um, kind of, they curated like a big nightly event. And so I think, you know, whoever's gonna curate like the art of now, not me, you know, like that's, it's coming. Like, I think that, you know, it's still, it's still being made and that work is being done. But I mean, mm. to your point, there's an exhibition at the Speed Museum right now that Alison mm. Glenn has curated. Okay. She was able to work very closely with Brianna Taylor's mother. Fantastic not only developing uh, the title and the concept for the show, but including a timeline of Breonna Taylor's life and using a number of works to speak to um, the kind of, the promise and the ways in which, you know, the nation maybe hasn't or hasn't lived up to that promise of, you know, what it means to be representative of a people, what it means to be an equitable society in a place, what it means for, for everyone to be able to thrive. And there are a number of contemporary artworks in that, in that show um, that I think really, really speak to right now. So yeah, there are absolutely, absolutely people doing the work. Um, and I think people are doing it in different scales and at different speeds, which is 
amazing to see like how mm. really wonderful things can be mobilized. Um, Meg Olney in um, Philadelphia um, organized Art for Philadelphia in three different rounds last summer to contribute to um, bail bonds funds for people who were mm. protesting and being arrested um, on the basis of the sale of some really tremendous um, art editions through uh, oh, artists living in the city of Philadelphia. So I think it's a really super inspiring project. And she was recently um, recognized by um, Virgil Abloh's uh, Figure Skater Prize. So that's what the prize okay. is called. But the first, uh, a major prize to, to recognize a curator kind of working um, to, uh, yeah, basically for social justice and, and to improve the, the cultural landscape for all of us. So I think there is, there's a lot of good work happening. I think uh, the, the curatorial collaboration that's called Languid Hands here in the UK um, is doing like really, really phenomenal work. Um, mm. They curated the an R.I.P. Germain show that was excellent, and have a lot more um, exciting projects coming up. Um, Boss, the Black Obsidian Sound System, um, they're wow. one of our nominees for the Turner Prize. So the Turner Prize list was just released this morning. So now I can talk oh, about it. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I mean there are a lot of people doing um, doing really really important work in this regard. Amazing, amazing. I'm, I'm thinking you've you touched on it all the way through our conversation, access and accessibility. And, and I just want to quote something you said and sort of frame it in where we are now. But you said institutions have to prepare themselves to respond to the requirements of who they are addressing and also to ask them who they aren't addressing and why not. And you spoke about how intentional you were with Soul of a Nation. Um, but I'm thinking about also how so much stuff has moved online and, and if you think that that has impacted access and accessibility, but also the fact that you are writing children's books. Yeah. You know, which I think all of that sort of shifts. You did one on um, Guyanese artist Frank Bowling and you're doing one on designer and abstract artist. I don't know how to say it. Sophie Toiba Arp. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. I include that on the first page so that you know how to pronounce it. So yeah, it's like toy. Yeah. But I think this is the thing that there's some, I'm not trying to deflect, but so much of the work I just enjoy and I'm a parent and my first, my first summer job was teaching art to little kids. I think I was 16 um, in, in someone's backyard, basically like in their, I mean, it's bigger than a garden shed, but basically in their lean-to, um, you know, like a conservatory, they turned into an, an art club for local children. And so I taught ceramics and painting in there in the summers. Um, and I just really enjoyed it. And, you know, I've seen my own daughter in the studio with Frank Bowling and how much she enjoyed that and just gets it, you know, that there's something about children just being up for it, like just up for trying things and making things and getting messy, that some of that, some of the things that we have to 
belabor in theory about like pure color or experimenting with like how paint might roll or how glitter might glob together like in a you know pool of something sticky you know all that you know kids just do it and so I think that there's yeah there's ways of thinking about how enjoyable it is to connect artists approaches to other people and sometimes the best way to do that is to say you know try it for yourself I mean a you'll see that it's not as easy as you thought but where something is like particularly ingenious it's just sort of like making some space to say here's another way of understanding what they're what they're doing but yeah it's just because it's it's fun yeah just because it's fun and I think so so with that in mind just because it's fun I always ask my guests what lessons they have learned that we could learn from um yeah tell us in the context of the work that you're doing and also what's next for you um oh that's such a big and good question um think I just I have my head down so much of the time just grinding like working from thing to thing and that's why Trisha Hersey's kind of sermon about rest has actually been really important to me this last year and a half that that it's okay to to not be working all the time or not be producing all the time um I think that there's I don't know it's so and the worst part is I know you'd even given me this question in advance, so I should be on it and prepared with an answer, but that's okay. More than anything, I just feel like I'm constantly learning. So I think mm-hmm. that's the other thing that I would say is that to your listeners, you know, A, I'm I'm still I'm super grateful to be here and to talk with you, but like I don't have it all figured out. So even someone mm-hmm. who you think has accomplished something or is an expert in some kind of field, like you, I, everything I've learned is because I'm still learning. You know, Mm. I, I think it's important not to approach something as like, right, I've done it. Or now that I've done this, I'm, I'm good. I know everything. Mm -hmm. Can't tell me Mm -hmm. nothing. You know, I think that there's, like a really big gap between like an aw shucks false humility, like, oh, I don't know anything. And, you know, not making space for, you know, yet yeah, A, to learn from people younger than you or people who are doing things in a different way, but then also to just like, to keep at it and keep asking questions. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's what I I find myself constantly doing you know like wanting to to know more and and figure things out or you know to learn from other people and to learn from artists in particular because there's so much I don't know Hmm. I, I think what you're saying though is very liberating because I think I think there are certain milestones in our lives where we're supposed to just know, and it's not true. I think the acceptance that the more you know, you realise how little you know. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm um, definitely but actually... learning that in reverse, for sure. And, you know, and I've lear- I have learned that from artists all the time. You know, 
Lorraine O'Grady didn't even become an artist until she was 40. Mm. You know, I think that there's so many. Yeah, I, early in the conversation when we were talking about, you know, people, you know, tearing up the rule books or showing us that different ways are possible. I mm. think that, you know, we don't have to have those kind of like women's magazine milestones that like, you know, mm. you've got your dream job by the time you're 29 and, you know, you've started a family by the time you're this way. You know, I'm, I'm putting it on like cisgendered women in this way. But, mm. you know, I think that there were, yeah, when I was growing up, there was, there was far more a sense of a kind of a standard career path mm. or what achievement looked like. And I think we can all especially because most people didn't see the last 18 months coming. I didn't. Um, That we can be like gentler with ourselves. Yeah. That it's possible for us to, to find ways to do something meaningful and that, that that might happen in different ways. Um, Mm. This is slightly random, but relates, you know, um, apparently in Icelandic culture, I've only been there once, but, um, you know, if, if you were asked, you know, what do you do? You know, you might well say that, that you do podcasts or you do these other Mm -hmm. things, but, you know, if, if one's day job is a plumber, but then they're also in a band, then the, what Mm -hmm. do you do would say like, oh, I'm in a band. You know, you Mm -hmm. wouldn't, the thing that, that pays your bills doesn't necessarily have to be the thing that defines you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in my line of work, I'll be honest, like, I think there's a very entangled sense of like who I am and what I do. Mm -hmm. Um, But it, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way. And equally that, yeah, in that, yeah, Trisha Hersey way, I think that, Mm -hmm. that our work doesn't have to be, thing or the only thing that defines us Mm -hmm. and I think that there are lots of ways that we can find liberatory paths Mm -hmm. you know beyond that and outside Mm -hmm. of you know the nine to five or ten to Mm -hmm. six or whatever (laughs) and it's liberating you said it liberatory way I think I think as you said with this 18 months that nobody saw coming you know, maybe Bill Gates did, and we just don't know. But he did say him, it. No, and we, I think we should give credit to, to President Obama, too, because he definitely yeah. talked about a flu-type pandemic and the nation needing to get ready for it, and nobody did. Wowzers, wowzers. But I think it's forced us all to redefine what is important when you can't do all the things that you thought were important. Or, but, and I think yeah. for, for some people, you know, and I'll include myself in that, you know, without work, what do you have? I mean, my husband's very great on that because he's just like, you know, all the pe- people who win the lotto and then go back to work. And he was like, don't they have hobbies? And he was like, <laughs> I've got so many hobbies. There's so many things I want to do, like outside of work time that I can fill my days. And I think that there's there's something about that too, like... It's okay for us to find the things that that we enjoy. And it's wonderful if if that meshes with, you know, how you earn a living. But but equally, you know, that there are 
there are ways and ways, you know, there, there, there's not one way to do things. Yeah, absolutely. My last question, what music are you listening to? Oh, I have been, okay, what's my, so I really, really love Fiona Apple. Like yes. back when, way back when. Shadow her Boxer, first, her first album. Uh, but um, she, on the, the last album, you know, one of her songs is about uh, someone that she went to school with, Shamika. And she did a remix with Shamika. Their, their, their third grade teacher put them in touch with one another. Mm-hmm. And the Shamika Said remix with Fiona Apple is three minutes that's well worth your time. Um, I also, I love the new No Name song, Rainforest. Mm-hmm. I think her album hasn't come out yet, but I really, really, I listen to that a lot. I've also been listening to Loose and the Yakuza. Oh, yes, yes, the French, French singer. Yes, yes, She's Belgian, yeah. Is she Belgian? Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, well, I think she's Congolese and Rwandan, but grew up in Belgium. And to our point, I mean, this is, I mean, this is real. She was disowned by her family and was homeless for a while and living in recording studios because her parents didn't want her to pursue singing. Um, At least one of her parents is a doctor, but perhaps they both are. So again, that sense of wanting to to protect your child and and to have a stable future, but then at the same time, what that means in not supporting them. But anyway, not only is she an incredibly beautiful person, but the album is really great. So that I like a lot. That's that's yeah, that's kind of in my heavy rotation. <laughs> They're good. Well, I'm going definitely going to check out uh, this new Fiona Apple tune. Fiona Apple tune. It was definitely when Fetch the Bolt Cutters came out okay. last in the first lockdown. Then the Shamika Said remix came out like a little bit later. But I it's see. just, I don't know. It just kind of has that like a certain kind of 90s, like, I don't know. It's just, there's something about the baseline. And I just, I love it. It's really good. Fantastic. Well, I'll definitely check it out. Dr. Zoe Whitley, thank you so much for your time, your insight, your your passion, your curiosity. It's been fantastic. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to Dr. Zoe Whitley. Zoe is a natural pedagogue. Her passion for the arts, for art history, for African-American, Black and diasporic histories teaches and inspires. And I find the best teachers do that. They spark and pique our curiosity, encouraging us to seek out more. And for that reason, I put references to many of the artists Zoe mentioned in the podcast blurb. Thank you for listening. Holding Up the Ladder is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share, like, subscribe to the podcast, leave comments. We also want to hear from you about any initiatives, individuals or organisations you know of that are using the arts and creativity to champion social change. You can DM us on Twitter at HUTL underscore or Instagram holding up the ladder hashtag HUTL or email us at contacthutl at gmail.com. Thank you again to our sponsors Airbnb. To learn more about the work they're doing and why they're supporting Holding Up the Ladder, head to the links in the podcast blurb.
Next week marks the start of a series of discussions I've had with writers and academics on race, class and education in the UK. We kick off the series with Sunday Times best-selling author of Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, Rennie Edo-Lodge. You know, the book was published almost four years ago now. And since then, like there's been a, an amazing renaissance of black writers, artists, thinkers, you know, directors, producers, everything. Like, obviously, it's not just me and my work. But like many of us have come to the fore, many of us have been incredibly successful and we are, you know, the rest of the country is is on our side, you know, in believing that racism is bad and that there should be policy changes mm. to, um, you know, redress the, uh, the balance that was horribly, you know, weighted since slavery and colonialism. And um, currently we have influential people in government who are who have placed themselves diametrically opposed to to us and our work. Until next time.